difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum, and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're putting ourselves through the painstaking, frame-by-frame labor of stop-motion film criticism... And really hoping listeners will appreciate the handcrafted charm of our podcast. Tasha, what are we going to do that your standard computer animated podcast couldn't do faster and cheaper? I think listeners will find that the next picture show has a warmer quality than computer animated podcasts. If they look closely, they'll be able to see our fingerprints all over this week's discussion of Chicken Run and Isle of Dogs, two of the most ambitious stop motion features to be produced in the current century. The two films also have a lot in common. Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson's second venture into stop motion after his road doll adaptation, Fantastic Mr. Fox, in 2009, pays homage to Akira Kurosawa and other Japanese cultural bric-a-brac. Chicken Run, the first feature by Aardman Animations, draws inspiration from other films, too, like Stalag 17 and The Great Escape. Both films are also about animals thrown into open-air prisons by their nefarious human masters, and both are about their whimsical plans to get out. Finally, both are rare examples of auteur animation, where a collaborative effort bears the distinct mark of a single creator. On part one of this week's podcast, we'll look at Chicken Run and talk about the history and style of Ardman Animation, the collaboration between an American studio and a British production team, and the awesome sight of Poultry in Motion. Then, in part two, later in the week, we'll bring in Isle of Dogs and talk about its wry take on authoritarianism and rebellion, its place in Wes Anderson's filmography, and some of the controversies that have developed around it. We'll also use this opportunity to resolve some of life's most important questions, such as, which came first, the chicken or the egg, or are dogs better than cats? It took a year and a half for Next Picture Show animators to render this week's episodes, and we really hope it paid off. And what brings you to England? Why, all the beautiful English chicks, of course. Pushy Americans. Hi, how are you? Overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Which punk is mine? What is it? It's a pie machine. Chickens go in, pies come out. Ooh, what kind of pies? We're all going to fly over that fence, and Mr. Rhodes is going to show us how. Did you say... Fly. By the time Chicken Run was finally produced in the year 2000, animation fans were already well aware of Ardman Animations, the British production shop that was founded in 1972 by Peter Lord and David Sproxton, but had come into greater prominence throughout the 1990s. One big reason was an animator named Nick Park, who had assisted Ardman in doing some animation for Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer video, but joined the company in earnest when Ardman was doing shorts for a Channel 4 production called Conversation Pieces. Park's contribution to conversation pieces was 1989's Creature Comforts, in which documentary interviews of real people talking about their homes are put into the mouths of claymation zoo animals. The conceit was simple, yet hilarious and affecting, and it won Ardman its first Oscar for Best Animated Short. Park won two more Oscars for 1993's The Wrong Trousers and 1995's A Close Shave, which followed the adventures of Wallace 
a daft British inventor who loves cheese and crackers, and Gromit, his silent but crafty dog, who's always the one to save them from Wallace's foolhardy schemes. The park style is unmistakable. He works with plasticine figures where the range of expression is heavily emphasized on the mouths and eyes. When I asked Park back in 2000 how he maintained consistency and continuity on a production as large as Chicken Run, he said they pre-made a set of about 20 mouths and beaks to express each vowel in each consonant. And if you've ever seen a Wallace and Gromit short or the feature Curse of the Were-Rabbit, the fact that Wallace can't speak means that his thoughts are expressed through a twitch of the eye. But Chicken Run was a serious swing for the fences for Ardman, and there are a lot of questions it had to answer. Was the Ardman formula too slight to be stretched out to feature length? How would it handle the logistics of a much larger and more expensive production than it had ever done before? And how would such a distinctly British sensibility mesh with an American studio and an American audience that was not used to animated films that looked or sounded anything like it? To answer that last question first, directors Park and Lord, working from a screenplay by Cary Kirkpatrick, opted to steer into the curve and make the British-American culture clash a central part of Chicken Run. To that end, they cast Mel Gibson as Rocky, a cocky cockerel who crash lands on a struggling poultry farm in Yorkshire. With his preening confidence and slick salesman charm, Rocky stands out as a brash American, contrasting sharply with the other chickens on Tweety's farm, who all have the modesty and deference of a certain type of Brit. The key exception is the character of Ginger, voiced by Julia Sawala, who's modeled a bit after another American, Steve McQueen, from The Great Escape. Ginger wants to flee their enclosure, which has been laid out like the barracks of a prison camp in a World War II movie. After seeing Rocky fly over the fence before crashing in the yard, Ginger gets it in her head that Rocky can help teach these flightless birds to defy gravity. And Rocky isn't the type to reveal he can't do the impossible. After it's revealed that Rocky cannot fly, and was renowned for being shot out of a cannon in the circus, all the chickens come together in a team effort to construct a flying machine before Mrs. Tweedy gets her chicken pot pie machine up and running. But is it a foul-proof plan? Pause for laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tried. Uh, In many respects, Chicken Run is a blow-up of the Wallace and Gromit formula, with lots of backfiring amateur schemes that lead to a Rube Goldberg action finale, with Mrs. Tweedy's machine turning into a malevolent version of one of Wallace's inventions. Yet it was anything but safe to assume that the Ardman style would connect with a young audience that wasn't weaned on stop motion and might reject the unfamiliar as a child rejects an exotic foodstuff. Chicken Run wound up being a huge hit, but Ardman's new film, Early Man, made only slightly more than $8 million at the U.S. box office. It could be that the American stake in Chicken Run's plot, along with Mel Gibson's casting, was enough of a grounding force to make the difference. But it could be that the Ardman style has become less familiar and more alienating to audiences now than back when Chicken Run was made. Perhaps stop motion has become so niche that blockbuster success is no longer possible, and it's up to the Wes Andersons and the Leicas of the world to keep it going. We'll speculate on that issue and more after the break. It's all in your head, Mr. Tweedy. Say it. It's all in my head. It's all in my head. Now, you keep telling yourself that because I don't want to hear another word about it. Is that clear? Yes, love. But you know that ginger one? It's chickens, you dolt. Apart from you, they're the most stupid creatures on this planet. They don't plot, they don't scheme, and they are not organized. This is a question we often ask of our classic films that have been made uh, in our lifetime. How does Chicken Run look to you now and then? I liked it a lot then. I liked it a lot now. I mean, it's a really fun movie, and I enjoyed watching it with my kid, too, which was, was always a treat. 
Yeah, I mean, I saw this in 2000 and I enjoyed it as much then as I did now, I think. it There's a really timeless quality to this film. Um, it actually reminded me in some ways of the experience of watching Babe a few a few months ago for mm-hmm. this podcast. Just be, I think like both films have a certain storybook quality or it's like divorced from our ideas of modernity in a way that allows it to not age the way films that have a little more of a contemporary vibe may over the years. But I, yeah, still love Chicken Run a lot. Tasha? I had a weird experience rewatching this movie because when I saw it back in 2000, I I was just over the moon for it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. I was so impressed with it. And like the craft of it, the filmmaking of it didn't really impress me at all because I guess on some level, like I, I knew what stop motion animation was, but I didn't really know what went into it. Rewatching the film now, I, I kind of take the humor as, yeah, that's cute Ardman humor. It's, it's fine. But the craft of it blows me away because I know so much more about like all of the work that went into it. And I find myself just staring at all of the little details and noticing the time and attention that went into, for instance, building a grimy pile of clutter in the garage or uh, just like putting the textures into into the backgrounds. I still enjoy this film. It has tarnished a little for me just with that impact of remembering it as a, an amazing, fantastic, hilarious piece of work. Mm. And now seeing it, you know, <laughs> 18 years later, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, that was that was fun. I, I like the voices. I like the banter. I like the action. The actual mechanics of it, though, did they just don't seem to have aged at all. Like that's one thing yeah. about certain mm-hmm. kinds of animation is it looks as good now as it did back then. Yeah, that was a good point uh, that yeah, Jeremy made it as well about it's going to be hard to identify when precisely this film came out, whereas there are plenty of other animated films where you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that I know I recognize what computer animation looked like when Toy Story came out. So I can identify for you when that, that was a mid 90s effort. Uh, but then later on, you have a, a different perspective. But Chicken Run is I mean, that process is the process that yielded Early Man. Early Man is also a very attractive film that I'm sure took forever to do just like this one. But the process is, is the same. And so there's that built in timelessness, which maybe gives it the edge over maybe is that something that other forms of animation and besides i guess hand-drawn can can they make that claim of, of timelessness the same way that stop motion can yeah you can sometimes date things by voice cast too and in part from mel gibson who was very much a huge star at the time is a kind of the cast is drawn for like you know the big box of highly respected british actors you know there's, there's <laughs> yeah. not there's not like, like a lot of trendy names in the cast no, but but some some pretty recognizable ones. Recognizable I mean, ones, ones for sure. Are, ones that are we still know and talk about and are working today. Mm, Especially Spall. if you were a fan of uh, Absolutely Fabulous. Yes, mm-hmm. it's, it's Ab Fab and also well, obviously this came after, but Harry Potter alums uh, all over this, this thing. But that <laughs> oh, can be said of pretty much any movie that includes more than one <laughs> British actor. These oh my days. gosh, what a boon that that whole series was to that country. Um, and the players of the uh, Kevin Bacon Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game. <laughs> yeah, I think I may have enjoyed it more today than at the time because I, I sort of bought into that premise that I introduced in the keynote, which is that how can the Ardman formula be sustained, you know, for a full length feature? Because those Wallace and Gromit shorts, the ones that won the Oscar are just so perfect and you know they get you to this zany rube goldberg finale so quickly and efficiently if you kind of blow that up over 85 minutes how are you filling that space and i may i think i maybe felt at the time that it didn't have enough material 
to fill that space, and I, I don't really feel that anymore. I think it, it's a very tight film and, and very accomplished. Yeah, I don't think they could have replicated the Wallace and Gromit formula over an 80-minute run because those shorts are very much dependent on very fast action and a lot of like big zany material that couldn't have been repeated over and over without eventually like losing their, their energy and their fun. This is an actual plotted film. It's yeah. got a lot of character work, and it's got a series of escalating goals and a series of like escalating confrontations with bad guys who get scarier and scarier as time goes on. I mean, it's in that way, it's a very conventional narrative, which a an attempt to make Wallace and Gromit just stretch out over the course of 80 minutes wouldn't be. Now, I, like I think Curse of the Were-Rabbit kind of does overstrain the Wallace mm. and Gromit formula. And I think that Ardman has kind of been on a downhill run since Chicken Run. But I, I think that's just because Chicken Run is such a, an efficient narrative. Yeah, I mean, I really thought Early Man was excellent, but really? I, I seem to be I seem to be kind of alone. <laughs> yeah, well, you're I, I definitely was... alone between the two of us. Have you guys seen it? I still haven't seen it. I, I wanted to see, it, but it was kind of came and went from the theater really pretty did. quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, had a, I had a good time with it, but but it is. Wow. It, it I thought it was pretty dire, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, that's 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 bananas. But well, but, I, I wonder. I wonder if that has to do because I kind of want to go back to something Tasha said about the humor in Chicken Run striking you as sort of whatever this time. And I haven't seen Early Man, but from what I've heard from Scott and sort of little bit of what I've read of it. It sounds like it's definitely in the vein of the sort of pun-centric, you might even say dad joke focus <laughs> vein of humor. Um, that Ouch. that I, I mean, I, I actually really like the humor in Chicken Run, especially watching it in tandem with Isle of Dogs, which trades in that very, very dry, wry strain of Andersonian humor, yeah. which this is just like the complete opposite end of the spectrum from. It's, it's not quite zany. There's still like a, a British reserve to it, but it's a lot more focused on on wordplay or quiet irony or you know and I, I don't know i really responded to the jokes in chicken run this time in addition to the visuals so i i just i wonder if maybe tasha you have sort of grown less enamored with the ardman strain of humor as <laughs> as scott has grown more enamored with it i mean that's possible i am definitely not a dad and, <laughs> and scott yeah. has been talking a lot lately about how he he is literally grown into dad humor and he makes dad jokes yeah case in point i seem to remember a uh, a foul joke at the beginning of this <laughs> I, know. Uh, I, I, I held back i gotta say i really <laughs> I, uh, I had uh, many Tasha, opportunities can, can, but can we go back to the creature from the black lagoon i don't shape have of any water. idea what you're talking about <laughs> oh, I, am, over here. Oh, I am officially right. not remembering what you're talking about here you, you about, got it. Think about chicken run. I, I, I think if there's a, if there's something that held me back from fully embracing it is I don't think there's, you know, I think I think the, the central romance is, is a lot of fun. Those those are fun performances. There's nothing that's quite with the depth of the relationship between Wallace and Gromit in this movie, which I think is just wonderful in each of those films, and and I think more emotionally rich, it's, uh, particularly in the wrong trousers, which finds poor Gromit exiled from his own home, and there's so much pathos, and it's and it's genuine pathos. It's not even like mock pathos. And this has some of that too. I mean, I, I found you know the scene early on where the poor chicken uh, meets a, a unpleasant end. That's really just that's not played for laughs in any way whatsoever. And and I like that chicken run gets that level as well. It's just not as sustained for me as in, as in the Wallace and Gromit movies, which was where I fell in love with Ardman was seeing the wrong trousers at the end of a you know a festival of animation. Kids back in the day before YouTube, mm -hmm. there used to be these festivals of animation that would play art houses, and you just see like a year's worth of great animation or sometimes mediocre animation in, in one night. 
I remember one particular year, uh, this ended one I saw and it was blew everything away. And it was like, a, you know, one of the best pieces of animation I've ever seen. And it kind of, you know, that's where I fell in love with Ardman. And that's to me, the wrong charges is still the, the high watermark for me. It's just that's, that's, that's a perfect short film. I mean, I do think that the Wallace and Gromit shorts are their peak, are the best things that they've ever done. But I disagree that this doesn't have the same kind of, of relationships of pathos. To me, there is a, an immense amount of pathos in Ginger's attempt to save all of these chickens who oh, are right. fundamentally like incompetent. No, I think there, there isn't a personal relationship between, like the, the Ginger-Rocky relationship isn't as rich to me as a relationship between Oh, I actively dislike the Ginger Rocky relationship and and like the impulse to like add a romantic element to it. I mean, we can kind of, I I think we should actually save that and talk about it in uh, in Mm -hmm. accordance with Isle of Dogs because that did occur to me is it's just so standard to tack on a romantic line, even if you're talking about chickens or dogs or like what have you i i I imagine if some enterprising student animator right now is out there somewhere making a short film with like used tuna fish cans and the used tuna fish cans are going to fall in love because (laughs) the the romantic beat is is so necessary i just would watch (laughs) (laughs) i I really feel for that female can i really hope that she gets the validation she's craving from that male can look for, look for it on this podcast in 2022 because <laughs> it takes that long to make stop motion yeah. animation i just i feel that like ginger's feeling for her flock and f- for their their haplessness and their hopelessness and her desperation in trying to save them all is the evocative emotional relationship mm-hmm. that the film needs. I feel like the, for me, one of the strongest points of the film is that montage in the beginning where you can just clearly see that if she was just out to escape and save her own life, she would have done it a long time ago. She's competent. She knows what she's doing. She has the plans, but she is so determined to save all of these, these fat, slow, dumb, clumsy chickens. <laughs> and it's hilarious watching them fail, but there's also, for me, that's where the pathos is is just you're trying to push a giant rock uphill and you're doing it because you care about these chickens. I think in Ardman, one of the big through lines is the really smart character desperately fighting to help the really dumb characters. And Ardman gets a huge vein of, of humor over and over and over out of profoundly stupid characters. Early Man goes straight to that well really early it on. Sm- it has smart characters as well. The exactly. There, yeah. And the tension is there between I mean, them. they're, they're from a different era. <laughs> that's the, that's An era of Early Man? Yes, an era of early man. Oh God, that movie's funny. Come on, Tasha, what's wrong with you? But look, I, I'm going to dig, dig in a little bit more to the, the pathos of this film, um, and maybe that's something that it has in common with Babe as well. Of course, Babe opens with a very ominous scene of uh, of Babe's mother being taken to what the child assumes is a better place, but we know is not. Um, and here, of course, you have the shot of the the shadow of the axe and mm-hmm. the, in in the sound of the axe falling and, and the reaction that uh, that you get in the barracks is pretty powerful. The other thing too, though, is that Ginger's efforts to liberate everyone come at a really huge cost. I mean, because you have that issue of like, hey, we could have saved this person from the chopping block if we all contributed eggs rather than busied ourselves with yet another hapless escape attempt. And so it's got that emotional weight to it as well. So I, I think I do agree with the group that like that the Ginger Rocky relationship, while enjoyable, doesn't have a, a huge amount of emotional weight, but the premise of escaping this farm that looks exactly like, you know, World War Two prison barracks, that's powerful stuff. 
I think when the chicken is hauled away and killed for not laying, Bunty lays out the excuse that, you know, we we could have saved her if we'd been focusing on that instead of escape attempts. But I also don't think that that's true at all. I think it's just something that she throws out there. I think what's more relevant is the chicken didn't speak up because she was operating from this place of of very British reserve. And I Mm. think that that's something else that goes through Mm. this film is this extremely British sense of humor. The characters have this like the kind of like loud daffiness that you had on shows like Absolutely Fabulous, for instance. But there's also there's the whole vein of dowdy World War Two humor with, uh, <laughs> well, World War One slash World War Two humor with uh, the RAF pilot Elder Chicken. And there's just there's a lot of different forms of British humor in here. And one of them is that place of reserve. And another one is the, that place of like wry silliness that Genevieve talked about. Uh, this is just this is a very British humor kind of film in a lot of ways. Well, that brings me to this point which is that chicken run was a pretty big production it was a dreamworks studio thing I and mean, it was a lot of a lot of resources were thrown at it what are the signs that you see of that effort in the film do you see that it is a productive collaboration between america and uh, and britain and are there elements of the film where the culture clash you know perhaps doesn't pay off the mel gibson element and, and the american element never feels like a concession to anything it does feel organic to the, the film they're telling and, and as tasha pointed out it, the humor is it doesn't tilt toward american tastes it's all very it's a very british you know sensibility driving this film so i mean i think i think it works i, I like the culture clash element as well I, I love the throwaway line about rocky someone says i'm not even sure if he is an american <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> given which I, I mean i'm sure is on, on purpose given that Mel Gibson is, is an American but uh, did yeah. spend a large portion of his life in Australia yeah. and is often including of his it. adult life yes. right? yeah. but I guess this is a kind of a good way to blend your question Scott with what we were just talking about the ideas of this film and I want to briefly go back to uh, that moment with Bunty saying that if we had focused on laying eggs instead of the plan you know this wouldn't have happened and like I do agree with you Tasha that like part of that moment is about British Reserve and not speaking up. But I do think that it is also about something that this movie is concerned with, which is the collective versus the individual. And we, we did talk a little bit about that uh, with Ginger and how she could have escaped herself. There's there's a specific line, I don't have it written down, but where she basically says, like, it's not that hard to get one or two of us out, but this is about all of us. And if we want to, like, back up and apply that to, you know, the the collective of making an animated film and all the work that goes into creating a stop motion film or creating a flying crate, you mm-hmm. know, there there is sort of an element of one person could do this, but it wouldn't be as good as if we all did this. Yeah. Okay, so in the intro, you made uh, you made a reference to this looking like the work of a single sure. auteur, and Keith kind of kicked up an objection to that. And yeah. it, you, you had like a little pre-argument. No, but- okay, well, I mean, I honestly think uh, Genevieve is making the argument for me in a way, because, I mean, of course, of course, any auteurist would say, would concede that film is a collaborative medium. Of course it's a collaborative medium, but who, who is the ginger in this situation? Uh, I would say Nick Park, right? Nick Park is the leader of this thing. Show, show your work. <laughs> Just you, you tell me. I mean, you you've seen you've seen these these Arvin shorts that he's been responsible for. I mean, you see the continuity between the Wallace and Gromit films and, and, and Creature Comforts and Chicken Run. It's all there. I mean, I think you would turn on Chicken Run for two minutes and say Nick Park did this. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I can't. You know, I mean, to take too not too much away from Peter Lord, who founded the company and 
you know, 1973 and uh, co-directed this, this movie, I think the Aardman as a, as a brand uh, and as uh, something w- that we recognize as a style really didn't take off until Nick Park got involved. And I, I think this is a situation that is maybe unique to animation, or at least something that comes up a lot in animation, because this comes up with Pixar a lot, too. Like Pixar, a lot of Pixar's films have more than one director, but they mm-hmm. are also often very frequently attributed to one big name in the Pixar stable, you know, yeah. or considered within the framework of one name in the Pixar stable. I guess I don't really have a good like explanation or theory for why it is other than just that animation particularly stop motion animation is really hard and takes a lot more cooks in the kitchen but just in terms of how we as viewers contextualize and think about films we do have a certain tendency toward auteurism or or like wanting to look at it through the framework of previous work and Mm -hmm. it's uh, much easier with the exception of some like filmmaking duos it's much easier to do that with a single person rather than a directing pair yeah i mean i, I guess that's true pixar is an interesting case and in that well uh, they often change directors halfway yeah, through too yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> I, I mean i wouldn't necessarily make the same claims about pixar as i would something like chicken run or, or, or certainly lyle of dogs which will which i think you can also pretty much say is a wes anderson film but Although, uh, i mean there were a lot of credit questions about uh fantastic mr fox certainly because of the way that he directed it and his lack of experience with animation true but it's just the sight test kind of what tells you who is responsible for that for a film like that right i i mean the sight test tells me in that case that it sounds and feels like a wes anderson movie but like the visuals just don't feel like anything else that he's he's ever made Mm, i'm curious if there's anything specific in chicken run that makes you think that like peter lord didn't have a significant hand in it or that makes you want to discount his uh contributions i don't mean to discount it exactly i just have to go by you know visual evidence by the tone of the thing by the characters by the way they the mouths look and the eyes look and how the whole world of the movie you know, instantly recalls these short films that Nick Park won Oscars for. And so, uh, you know, while acknowledging that this is a a huge team effort, I still feel like if I'm thinking about who's responsible for this movie, I'm thinking it's Nick Park. But I did want to kind of get back to this other collaboration between the U.S. and and Britain, uh, because I think it's so significant, you know, both of the films, you know, box office prospects or production size, and and also to the core of the material itself, which is uh, about a brash you know, American, uh, you know, Rocky, played by Mel Gibson, and then a, a lot of Brits. And I just wanted to get into more about how that sort of culture clash benefits the film, or maybe, or maybe compromises it in some way. I'm curious. Well, I, I think you know, just in terms of its cultural impact, it benefited from DreamWorks really wanting to be an animation powerhouse at the time, yeah, and not having quite figured out how to do that. Because I'm looking at a list of their animated features, and their first five are ants. The Prince of Egypt, Road to El Dorado, those last two both traditional hand-drawn animation, mm. Chicken Run, and then next would be Shrek. And Shrek was basically, well, we're just going to do Shrek and variations on Shrek for a long time to come yeah. uh, with some stuff, you know, like Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and Flushed Away from Ardman thro- thrown in. But I think, you know, it did have a very big promotional push, and I think they kind of made it an event, which definitely helped kind of smooth over, you know, a good publicity campaign kind of helps smooth over any sort of reservations people have about seeing uh, uh, an odd-looking movie with, uh, you know, neurotic-looking chickens. You know, I, I've written about kind of the 
problems that DreamWorks has had in figuring out how to brand itself and what it wants to be over the years. I wrote a piece about that at the Dissolve, which I believe you pushed me to, Keith. Sounds like me. It, it certainly, yeah, it was not something that was on my radar until you brought it up. And then the more I, I looked at it, the more I was like, yeah, this this is something that really needs to be teased out. And here you're doing it again because you list those films and I think – my God, what a weird collection of films. You know, you've got a computer animated film that was sort of a strange attempt to knock off what Pixar was doing with A Bug's Life without having seen it. And then a couple of cell animated films, one of which is really fun, but also really compromised from the original vision. And then you've got, we're going to throw a bunch of money at Aardman. And then you've got, we're going to do something distinctive that's going to be really, really popular and have a voice of its own. And people liked that. So let's just do it over and over and over again (laughs) mechanically for years. What a strange collection of films. And with Aardman, it just really feels like that's just such a strange bump in that series because it really feels like here's somebody with a distinctive specific voice that knows what they're doing and is doing it successfully. Let's throw money at them and hope that works. Mm -hmm. There's also sort of an interesting dichotomy happening with the financing of this film, which DreamWorks came on in 1997, I believe, to uh, co-finance it. But a year before that, Pathé, which is the oldest studio in Europe, it's older than most American studios. And Pathé was on board a year before DreamWorks. And like I said, Pathé is very old. It's been around, I think, since the 1800s. And it just has this like very, very long legacy in both European and, and American film. What's her mascot? It's a, it's a chicken. Oh my gosh, I didn't even put that together. Um, so there's this interesting balance happening between this like very old, established European company and this upstart American company wanting to like get its foot in the door, you know. And I don't know that that necessarily plays out on screen in any you know noticeable way but it it just in terms of sort of that collaborative energy behind this film there's sort of a a new old balance happening it may do a little because basically you have two roosters in the story Oh, that's true there's the old british one who's Mm. very traditional and is constantly talking about you know the good old days his raf days and there's the young brash cocky american who comes waltzing in and accomplishes things he can't accomplish and immediately gets the attention of all of the the chickens who behave in a very love struck manner around him (laughs) and the old RAF guy Fowler is like Americans they're what is it overpaid oversexed and over here and then there's also that line about always showing up late to the war late to every war (laughs) yeah so I mean that is uh, very much the uh, the, you you young brash upstarts Mm. which is also like just a rich vein of comedy on on both sides of the the sea for both British and Americans because of the culture clash between them in the wars, you know, that that sense of we're two very different cultures who are here together, like fighting a common battle, speaking a common language, but still not necessarily getting along or understanding each other well. And I, I think that does play out here just between the two roosters. I think that Chicken Run is a really interesting one of possibly one of the reasons it played so well with me at the time was it was weirdly uncommon to see movies with female leads, much less a movie where the collective most of the characters here are female, most of the most active and intelligent characters are female. But the the biggest clash kind of plays out between the styles of the two male characters, even though they're very obviously like supporting characters. We cracked it open. <laughs> like an egg, yep. Pollock. <laughs> Boy, there are a lot of egg jokes and metaphors in this movie. There would have to be. Yeah. 
in, in the Pathé version, was there an American rooster? I wonder. I mean, do they do they have to tweak that for uh, the, yeah, the DreamWorks? I I mean, for everything I've read, I don't think DreamWorks said anything to them. Like DreamWorks didn't come to them with Mel Gibson. Nick Park had met Gibson years before at the Oscars, uh, and they just they got along. They liked each other. <laughs> Mel Gibson was familiar with uh, Wallace and Gromit and was a fan, mm. uh, and he invited them to dinner and they they sat down and talked. And he was thinking of him for this role. He he says that. They watched Maverick, and the character, his Maverick character, was <laughs> just so much the character that they wanted for this. They did decide at some point to make it uh, an American character when it wasn't originally, and to bring in that culture okay. clash thing. But I haven't read anything that would suggest that was a like DreamWorks influence or came from DreamWorks money, no, I mean, or I, that Mel Gibson was pushed on them in that you need a star kind of way. Oh, oh you think they could have gotten away with having no stars, or as they say in the player, no stars, just talent. <laughs> um, um, but uh, uh, that would have been that would have been interesting, though. I, I think I don't want to give the impression that DreamWorks imposed Mel Gibson on them necessarily, because I because I think this is from a plotting standpoint an incredibly productive clash between cultures, and I'd, I'd miss it if it weren't there. Rocky's a very distinct character who, who completely changes the dynamic there. Ginger is really not like Rocky, but also not like the other chickens, and so you have these interesting you know sort of strata in terms of confidence i would say and competence so that that's great and then and then i think you really get into a nice play on the british american alliance broadly right uh, in terms of like what each country brings to the table if you want to put it as sweeping a stereotypical way as as possible and i think it really is to the film's benefit and and it really is reflective too of one of the major influences on the film, which is The Great Escape, right? I mean, I talked about Ginger as being kind of the Steve McQueen character because you get that early scene of her in the dumpster bouncing the ball against it and constantly trying to escape, which is... Did you notice what that ball was? What was it? It's a Brussels sprout. It's very clearly a Brussels sprout. (laughs) Which I just think is a nice little uh, detail. So it's only not fit for humans, only for chickens in solitary confinement can consume... Brussels sprouts the Brussels are delicious. Sprouts. Yeah, no, Yet another I thing for no, I do. About. I really do like Brussels sprouts, but you have to really just absolutely kill them with seasoning in order for them to be at all edible. <laughs> but they're good when you kill them with seasoning. Tasha likes raw, unsalted Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I'm, on I'm her munching burrito. on some right now. That would be so great, Tasha. We've got to do that. Would be a video podcast of you eating, of you eating just just wash them with water. And just eat them straight. Eat him Meanwhile, directly. Scott's in the corner just like bouncing one against the wall. <laughs> but to get back to The Great Escape, you know, Rocky is also reflective of Steve McQueen because he is an American among allied, I guess in the film, you know, they're allied prisoners, but are they all British? I mean, is it? It's not really a. Is it really a mix of soldiers? In, no, in, in the Great Escape. No, I think they're they're all British. Yeah, soldiers. except for except for McQueen, who's the guy who's going to be yeah. responsible for breaking them all out. And so you've got a nice rhyme happening between um, this film and, and that film in that respect. Yeah, which may have helped influence it. Although, from what I've read, the screenwriter brought in that idea himself. Because he wanted in the clash between Ginger and Rocky to see kind of a a Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn thing, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because they're both American. But I I, I mean, somewhere in that dynamic, apparently, I guess kind of the more cultured and the more down to earth character was apparently what he was looking for in their dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think you could mark Rocky as the Spencer Tracy type and and Ginger as as the Catherine Hepburn 
type, couldn't you? Because she's, you know, she's kind of smart but uptight, and he's kind of sly and uh, a little bit calculating, but also charming. Yeah, and I and, mean, and I think in a, in in that tradition of romantic comedies, you know, equality was always what was at stake. You know, a, a battle of the sexes. Uh, you think of a film like Adam's Rib is is really about two people who spend the movie fighting but then getting to a place where they're on the same level which is why those films are <laughs> so fantastic and i think i think you get a little bit of that here i wish there was more hey, 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 hey. what kind of crazy chick are you do you know what'll happen if he finds me it's a cruel world i just decided i don't like you i just decided i don't care now show us how to fly with this wing teach us then now he's valuable you say sure Get the torch. Now you listen here, sister. I'm not going back to that life. I'm a lone free ranger. Emphasis on free. And that's what we want. Freedom. <gasps> Fancy that. They're coming this way. Oh, oh no. No. Oh, no. They're on to me. Teach us to fly and we'll hide you. And if I don't... <laughs> was your father by any chance a vulture? <laughs> Do we have a deal? Yeah, it's interesting to me for a film made when this film was made for there to be such a an overt and direct addressing of of sexism and sexual inequality. It's just it's really interesting to me. Like Rocky puts Ginger down and keeps addressing her as baby doll and condescending to her doll face. Just this like endless string of kind of patronizing little nicknames. And it's a big deal when he calls her by name. But it's also a, a sign that he's come to see her as a person, which, you know, we decided that they were people pretty early on when we were deciding we didn't want to see them die. But it's like, it's not subtle. It's, it's a very direct uh, addressing of gender inequality in a children's film. And it comes across as pretty natural and organic. I just think it's kind of neat. I will say the calling her doll face, etc. is probably like the one element of this movie that just didn't age great for me and that's entirely extra textual based on Mel Sugartit's oh, no. that makes it richer it makes it, it, makes it, it makes it deeper you know yeah. because Mel Gibson's character is capable of learning things he's not necessarily capable of learning um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. wait, wait until we get to the classic film What Women Want <laughs> uh, oh my god what are we going to pair that with what yeah I don't know but uh, we'll find out won't we it'll be some, something that, that's going to recall it's narrow. I think there is like a what men want. Oh, maybe maybe I that. just maybe that was a nightmare I had. But <laughs> I guess one last question I wanted to address is the look of the film, which we all agree is quite distinctive and timeless and all the other business. Um, what um, sets Ardman apart from other stop motion animation houses? Not just animation, but stop motion. You know, and what what is the difference as an animation idiot? What's the difference between puppets and and the use of puppets and clay in terms of the, in terms of the way the, the impact a film like this could have on an audience? I mean, they're all puppets. You know, it doesn't matter what they're made of; they're still puppets. But yeah, that's but true. the the your specific... like, what isn't a puppet, man? <laughs> we're, we're all puppets if you think about it. <laughs> we're puppets all the way down. But these are puppets made of plasticine, um, which give them that very shiny, glossy look that I think that I at least associate with Ardman's style. Actually, they're mostly made of silicon. 
Really? I, yeah. I, I watched the making of Doc and they, and they kept saying plasticine. The heads and uh, and the wings are made of plasticine because it's oh. so mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bodies are made of silicon because they wanted the, the color uh, differences. That makes sense. And you can't paint plasticine. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, almost all of the chickens have necklaces or neckerchiefs, scarves, like okay. some sort of neck decoration. Mm-hmm. It's to hide the join between the silicon mm-hmm. body and the plasticine head. I mean, that that is actually one of my favorite details one of the characters and i've already forgotten which one has a a neckerchief that's just so it's like florally patterned and like i think it's ginger it might be ginger the details on it are ridiculously fine and i found it distracting this time (laughs) through because i was watching it thinking that's something you could do in 3d printing but they didn't have 3d printing back then like how did they do that and i'm pretty sure that it was a silicon mold that was just hand painted that makes sense because like if it were plasticine something like the incredibly detailed feathers of i think it's max underside or, or, or bottom actually half. Yeah. i mean they all have those ridiculously detailed butts yeah. uh <laughs> it, well it's important because yeah. they're constantly there's so much action in the film that re- requires them to like hop on top of each other or fall on top of each mm-hmm. other or smash into things and like those little feathers that be constantly trying to pinch them back exactly. in place yeah. but silicon you can mold and then it's fixed and you don't have to be constantly adjusting uh the squishy little details but that's why if you if you watch them in motion uh the arms and the faces are a lot more expressive but they're also where you can see those fingerprints which Mm -hmm. scott alluded to in his keynote Mm -hmm. it's just it's one of the most distinctive things about ardman is the ability to literally see the the creator's fingerprints on the work and and i think that makes an impression i mean whether you're conscious of it or not it's one of those things where you just immediately think this is like a playground that somebody has built they've got these these figures that they're really moving around it's not distracting and that you can sense the creator's hand necessarily at all times but there's that warmth i guess uh, that like a vinyl or something there's that quality that it has that sets it apart from even stuff we see now from you know Leica or something like that there's uh, it has a different feel to it no I, yeah and i think that warmth also extends to the sets and the way that sets are created and made here and and lit specifically there, there's a moment early in the film where mrs tweedy like opens the door and just the the way the light spills out it just gives so much depth mm-hmm. to this a kind of depth that is hard to replicate even in like modern computer animation, you know, and it's done because it's an actual physical space that is lit in, in miniature, you know, and that just gives it such a more tactile and real quality. My, my head just spins thinking about all the work that went into this, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Like I didn't even consider it the just lighting it, keeping the lighting consistent. I mean, and this is... Yeah, yeah, well, to go to your uh, question about, like, you know, what distinguishes this as Ardman, I, I got to bring up the pie machine, which <laughs> it was built, you know, there you can find pictures of it. And it's kind of like probably about 10 feet long ish, you know, and it's a somewhat working contraption, like it has moving parts. And like, that is how they were able to film, you know, and it is a uh, it's a character in and of itself to an extent. And mm-hmm. I think that is something we also see a lot of in the Wallace and Gromit shorts and the, the Rube Goldberg-esque machines. So sort of just the physicality of those machines. Definitely. Um, For me, I think what makes this Ardman is Mr. Tweedy. 
I mean, he <laughs> is he is that prototypical like dumb lumbering character who kind of just stumbles through the, the through the story. It, it cracks me up so much that he so he spends the whole story trying to convince his wife there's something going on with the chickens, <laughs> and she's like, no, no, they're just chickens. Look at them; they're wearing clothing. <laughs> like that one's carrying a lantern right she's now. She's knitting. That one's knitting. That one has been knitting the entire movie, and Mrs. Tweedy is completely blind to it. But his face, his face is very much like Gromit's face. It's very expressive. It's very soulful. And despite the fact that he's trying to murder a bunch of the characters, despite the fact that he has this direct adversarial, like weirdly paternalistic punishing relationship with Ginger, he's just he's kind of a soft adult who you feel for just a little, mostly because he's under the thumb. I said all of that about the the exploring the gender imbalance of the characters. We didn't even talk about the fact that... She's a strong female character. She, boy, is she a strong female character. She is a strong and evil female character, and he's kind of a, a doughy lump. But his face is just is so expressive, and it goes through such a range of emotions in this film, from malice to hurt to confusion to suspicion. Like, for a doughy, round, like, ball of plasticine, it is amazingly expressive. And to, to me, he just, he kind of makes the movie. Yeah, I mean, and you could go on and on about the individual chickens also having just little touches that kind of, you know, a pair of glasses or just something that kind of gives them each, uh, you know, a certain special distinction and, and makes the film fun. But we'll um, we'll talk in, uh, even more about, uh, you know, Chicken Run down the line. But, uh, but for now, we'll get into some feedback on our recent episodes. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. To distract people from obsessing over Annihilation and Stalker any further, we've ventured into pop science fiction once again with our pairing of Tron and Ready Player One and received plenty of good feedback. Genevieve, want to get us started? Sure. This one comes from listener Charlie, who joined us in speculating about what 80s cinema has in common. He writes... In your episode on Tron, Tasha asked about a grand unifying theory of 80s films that might explain their devoted following. I'd suggest our most essentially American myth is not rags to riches, nor the city on the hill, nor the triumph of the underdog, but slobs versus snobs. It lays at the heart of the revolution and runs through our most venerated cultural works, from Huck Finn to Gatsby to Animal House. In the movies of the 80s, it arguably found its purest expression. Flynn versus Dillinger, Jones versus Bullock, McLean versus Gruber, Veronica versus Heathers, Rebels versus Empire, Axel Foley versus the city of Beverly Hills. Roguishly charming loose cannons versus uptight, effete villains with crisp suits and clipped diction. These movies speak to the outsider inside all of us and our shared desire to get one over on the crusty old Dean. Of course, the mutability of that myth probably also gave us Trump. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Charlie. (laughs) This is an extremely clever (laughs) letter. Uh, What do you think of the grand unifying theory of 80s films? I'm a fan, and I'm especially a fan because of this list, which is uh, thorough and thoughtful. Yeah, it's plausible. Uh, I got I got got to turn over my head a little bit more, but I try. I, I'm I'm sort of searching for exceptions here, and not really hitting on any right right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, I think the slobs versus snobs language is something, and I, I could be wrong here, and correct me if so, but like that like that specific phrase was one that we didn't really start using until those movies mm-hmm. of, of of the eighties. So, like, I think he's maybe applying it to movies that. Uh, like rebels versus empire that you know maybe existed before we had that 
framework to talk about it, but the underlying idea of, uh, as he put it, uh, roguishly charming loose cannons versus uptight effete <laughs> villains, like slobs versus snobs is a good shorthand for that. But I think the idea probably predates the 80s, but as he says, found full flower in, in the 80s films. I well, really wonder if there's uh, somebody has got to have dug deep into this. But I mean, looking at especially looking at something like Star Wars, where the uh, feet villains all have British accents and the roguish heroes are, are all have American accents. I suddenly wonder if part of that tradition didn't come out of the kind of culture clash, like the sort of baby boomer era understanding of the culture clash going back generations to World War One, American Revolution. Yeah, I was going to say it's... Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. American Revolution wanna... is the ultimate slob versus snob war. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But it's it's harder for me to draw a direct line between the American Revolution and 1980s film. Whereas, it, like, if you look at it, <laughs> Come as, on, Tasha. if you look at it as draw a series it, of generational it. <laughs> echoes, it makes a little more sense to me. At any rate, I mean, that does sort of tie us into Chicken Run and exactly how it does culture clash and slob versus snob. But I, I do think that this is just sort of a like a rich vein of American, the American myth of like the self-made person mm -hmm. who doesn't have the education, but does have the grit and the smarts mm -hmm. and, you know, the cool vest and the blaster at his, at his side. Yeah. We like unpretentious people. I mean, this is the country where, where we ask pertinent questions in presidential elections like, which one could we have a beer with? <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. Not which one actually knows something about uh, public policy. Does Top Gun fit? Because the narrative of that is kind of about the maverick, if you will, kind of being, <laughs> being subsumed into the system and, and learning to, to, to fly right, right? Am, yeah. I, am I wrong? Or is, is, is maybe it's the military exception. Maybe, mm, maybe. Yeah. This is You've given us a lot to think about, uh, Charlie, so we appreciate that. On to letter number two. With Ready Player One, there's been a lot of discussion over how certain characters are used, particularly the Iron Giant, who turned into a killing machine uh, that his character in the original movie decidedly is not. Keith, one of our loyal listeners, Ben, posted on Facebook about this. Yeah, Ben writes, on the subject of how Ready Player One falls short of the Roger Rabbit Wreck-It Ralph experience, I think a big reason I wasn't thrilled to see all these famous characters coexisting is the fact that they're recognized as avatars for normal people rather than as the actual characters. I might get a kick out of imagining Freddy Krueger having a casual conversation with Chun-Li, but not out of imagining two guys posing as those characters doing the same. The images of these two scenarios may be identical, but the personalities and histories associated with these characters aren't there when they're avatars. And those qualities are necessary for triggering the emotional connections people have with the characters themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's very accurate. I, I wasn't here for Ready Player One, so I'm eager to talk yeah, about so it a Keith, little bit. Keith, but, tell, me, tell us, first of all, what you thought of the well, film. Well, you know, let's, let's, let's address this specific okay. point first. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it is, you know, when you first imagine a scenario, you do imagine it's like going to be Roger Rabbit with, with 80s characters. And, and then, then you realize, as he points out, it's just it's just norms, uh, you know, dressed, dressed up like these characters, which isn't nearly as fun. And you're just kind of seeing them, not the actual characters. But as for Ready Player One, oh boy, I mean, we could, you want to just start the the show over. I have a lot. I have a lot of thoughts. And <laughs> for a while, I thought, am I too soft on Spielberg? Because like you know, I'm I'm out there stumping for you know Warhorse, which I don't think anyone really likes. I'll defend. I love it. I'll, def I'll defend the Terminal. Um, but I, I really didn't care for this movie. It's my least favorite Spielberg movie since Crystal Skull, and that's that's by a pretty easy margin. And that was my least favorite for you know a long time before that. I, I guess Hook. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just I just felt like there was just wasn't. 
maybe it's wanting it to be something that's not, but like when I read the book, I, I just really wanted to find a deeper level where it, you know, kind of recognized the sadness of, of a whole culture, like, you know, just not progressing at all and just being obsessed with the stuff of one decade, which I don't really think that Ernest Klein has it in them. I think he really thinks this stuff is just awesome and it's kind of, <laughs> kind of an apex of pop culture that we should bow before for the rest of our existences. And, and you know, in this film country, it's the same way. And, and uh, I think there's individual sequences that are, that are really cool and a lot of stuff that's just not. I didn't find myself, you know, caring about the, the, the characters at all. And, um, and you know, I didn't think there was really much thematic engagement and, and the go outside and, you know, make out with your girlfriend twice a week or whatever. It was, <laughs> it's, it's sort of tacked well, when you, on. When you put it that way. Yeah. I mean, well, we, we did kind of address how, uh, like, we weren't necessarily down for that message shoved at the end of the film. But when, when you phrase it as, you can go make out with your girlfriend twice a week, yeah. it, may, that's, it becomes even more damning. Yeah. You're, you're hideously scarred uh, girlfriend. She, <laughs> she does have a Phantom of the Opera thing going yeah. on there, right? Gerard Butler Phantom of the Opera thing it's like I am too hideous to be seen by humanity yeah. No, you're a gorgeous person <laughs> with a, a very minor like mark on your face. What? Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you, you've avoided spoilers in, in the episode, and, and uh, you know, it's kind of looking forward to the discussion of the Shining Escapade, which which I thought was in many ways a highlight of the movie, but also kind of one of the more distressing parts of the movie as well, because you know, the Shining is such a distinctive and atmospheric and and one of a kind film, and just kind of go you know tromp all over that is a very odd thing to see Spielberg do. I mean, it's, it's over a lot of affection. Obviously, he and Kubrick had a long relationship. It's also just technically an 80s film. You never you really think about The Shining and say, that's the 80s, you know? I mean, I just yeah. think that movie's not really part of the kind of, of the culture that no, Klein is evoking. that's but actually why... I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it immensely, uh, the, the Shining stuff, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, it's kind of a cheat. I mean, The Iron Giant isn't from the 80s either. I actually appreciated the fact that the film opened it up a little past this very narrow band of mm. culture and included other things, including Throwing in the Shining, which doesn't really fit the slobs versus snobs narrative and is a very different kind of thing. Or does it? <gasps> No. No. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. Keith, I kind of feel like you and Ben are are coming from the same place here in that you're wanting this film to be more than it is and and something that it's expressly not. I mean, my reservations and problems with the film are are I think well established at this point. I think there's like more than 2 hours of me podcasting about this film between <laughs> this and pop culture happy hour and and film spotting. I've talked a lot about the reasons I don't love this film so i'm certainly not going to say that you know you're wrong to object to it in any way but that specific objection where you wanted it to engage more with the sadness of the world and ben's specific objection where he wants to engage more with those characters as those characters instead of avatars strike me as both coming from a place of not engaging with what the film is specifically trying to do which is look at the way people interact with this pop culture and make it their own. To me, what makes these characters interacting interesting is not what does Chun-Li have to say to Freddy Krueger. That doesn't interest me at all. I mean, that's fanfic. If I wanted that, I could go find it. What interests me here is the degree to which people have fastened onto these characters, made them their own property, and donned them as skins, which is an experience we see every day on the internet. And I think that's a very separate thing that is interesting here for its own reasons. Yeah, but I feel it really gets into that. You know, it doesn't doesn't help that Wade is like the most generic looking, you know, avatar Oh, sorry, Parzival. Uh <laughs> you know, maybe I had an idea of what I wanted from this movie that it's not going to give me, but if it gave me something 
satisfying on, on its own terms, I think I would have wouldn't have minded that much at all. But I found myself, you know, is this over yet? Toward the end, <laughs> just, are we really going to go through the whole adventure thing from the book? And then the, the actual battle, I felt very headachy. And and like this is a far 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 superior film to suicide squad but i had that thing also where it's like there's just a lot of digital junk flying mm. around you know i'm not sure i'm pr- my brain is built to process this maybe I'm, I'm too old so then listeners if keith had been on the show i think he would have been on the lowest possible end i don't hate it but, but i'm just but, saying yeah, no it's not i've heard, I'm, i've been listening to you i think i think you you uh, liked it less than any of us but um uh, i'm glad we got that opinion out here uh, I, ha- I, ha- I had to get it out somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, uh, and that will wrap up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, and their poultry puns. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. Yeah, come talk to us. Don't be chicken. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Isle of Dogs and talk about how stop motion suits Wes Anderson's sensibility and how its own tale of captive animals plays in relation to Chicken Run. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... You have to have an egg to have a chicken. You also have to have a chicken to produce an egg. Think that over for a couple of days. I don't care if I die.